Welcome to another episode of Strictly Business, the podcast in which we talk with some of the brightest minds working in media today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. 2020 will be a big year for NBC Universal between the launch of the new streaming service Peacock and the return of the Summer Olympics. Both are big priorities for my next guest, Linda Yaccarino, chairman of the Advertising and Partnerships at NBCU, where she represents over $10 billion in ad inventory. And she's joined today by Mike Chapman, global lead for media and entertainment strategy at Accenture. Accenture is the sponsor for this episode of Strictly Business. What does Peacock bring to the table that you or don't already deliver across so many broadcast cable and digital fronts? Well, I, I, for us at NBC Universal, this is how we're approaching it. So we, we say all the time, all the other, again, another air quotes. Uh, I, I'm now realizing that I'm doing a podcast. I have to stop air quoting. <laughs> um, other streaming services are pushing advertisers out. And in a world of fragmentation that is only going to become more fragmented and more complicated, it seemed pretty logical to say, let's not push them out. Let's invite them in. Okay. So that was, okay, check the box. Got that. And all that content that you're talking about, which is super exciting from the big super tanker vault of NBC Universal to all the things that we, we, air and broadcast all day, every day, the the access that we have to great content is truly, truly unparalleled. That being said, for the first time ever, there is an opportunity to bring a product to a market that's data-driven on a current day technology platform fueled by great content, but it's not paralyzed or handcuffed to any legacy whatsoever. I don't have to have a conversation about a C3. We have conversations about what do our advertisers want to see in what we ask them, what do you see as the future of advertising? How do we partner with you to reinvent not just a model in how it'll be ultimately measured, because it will be measured in outcomes in some way. But what is your, what is the commercial content look like? Let's look at advertising, not in a perishable period of time, but in a rebirth of creativity. And that's what we're talking to our advertisers about because we have no legacy. It's all new. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would add, um, that was an interesting point you brought up about bringing advertisers in versus pushing them out. And this gets back to a point I made earlier about... I just the, want them to like us. <laughs> I think they do. <laughs> it, it, it gets back to an earlier point I made about the pace of change in the ecosystem. So if you look at the proposed direct-to-consumer services out there, there are a lot of cases, replications or extensions of pay TV. You know, the business models are similar. Instead of me paying an MVPD, a cable company, a satellite company, I'm paying this programmer in the same way. And, you know, it's going to have a similar content slate, maybe more exclusive, but it's a very similar model. And so the question becomes, how much true incremental reach or protection of existing reach do those models put out there? That's the you know, the, the flaw or the limitation potentially in the direct-to-consumer model. Because, you know, the research we've seen, Accenture's done studies that 
have looked at how many subscriptions and how much a consumer would spend. And you know, our research suggests that there's going to be only a certain appetite for a certain number of services and a certain spend per month for a consumer. So, so that's the model that you know most programmers are going after today. Uh, I think the advertising angles industry interesting. The question I think it's which will have to be borne out by NBCU is does the advertising angle allow you to continue to fund and produce premium content that is competitive with the other services? Do you have a sense though of what the ad loads will be like on Peacock? Because already back on linear TV, you guys have been all about cutting down the amount of yeah, ad that time. that part's going great. It has to happen. I know there's a, an occasional, hey, are you guys still reducing? And they run a report and they go, oh, you're right. It's still reducing. Uh, we do what we say we're going to do, number one. Number two, you got to improve the viewing experience. And if anyone has watched linear television recently, it's not. It's a lot less than perfect. And we're determined to improve the consumer experience. That's the first thing. Second thing, I think you can rely on Peacock to have the lightest load of any ad-supported streaming platform that's out there right now. That's the plan. Things can change, but that's the plan. And next year, I think, will be also a, a good demonstration of NBC Universal's power there with the Olympics returning. How big do you think the games are going to be this time around, particularly from an advertising perspective? There is no doubt that um, the Olympics, which will, there's no doubt that the Olympics in Tokyo will be the most viewed event in television history. And when you we, say television, though, you television mean in the broadest history. sense. history, Because... We've evolved the way we broadcast, and for people listening, for listeners, I'm air quoting, <laughs> um, the way we broadcast, we will broadcast every event, every medal, in over, I have to, you have to, I'm going to say it's about 7,100 hours of Olympic competition. So whatever sport you are interested in, you will be able to see. And there's new sports that we're bringing, speed climbing. It's so exciting what's going on with the Olympics. In addition to one of the most exciting cities in the world, there's a huge amount of enthusiasm and momentum for people to tune in to what's happening in Tokyo. And, and if you even were reading... Uh, you know, the paper, I don't want to sound that in a traditional sense, but if you're looking on Twitter or trying to be up to date, if you even saw what Simone Biles and, and the American women accomplished this past weekend, there's so much buzz and momentum because the women's team, which is so exciting, is, is definitely assumed and favored to win the most medals of any women's team in U.S. history, and it's probably going to be likely the world. So there's so much excitement and so much emotion about tuning in to what's happening at in Tokyo for the Olympics that we couldn't be more excited, and that enthusiasm is reflected with the advertisers as well. So there'll be more buzz than ever, more audience than ever. Or is it a sure thing, however, that this will be the most profitable games, the most revenue ever, because... 
just because you have all that inventory doesn't necessarily mean you're going to sell it. Well, I'm not here to report how we're pacing with our advertising partners. That's okay. But there's many, many games of data that uh, proves the impact of being an advertising partner during the Olympics. But what's most important when you advertise in the Olympics, in addition to what could possibly be better than the biggest, most dominant content over a 17-day period that is a family event, unique, that's really hard to find these days, that you also get to wrap yourself up in the American flag and watch your team compete globally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's just the emotion of it all. I got chills when I was saying it, and I'm assuming everyone listening would. But that being said, when you're a marketer and you're able to share that, there is an incredible halo effect that you take with you after the closing ceremonies for a really long time. And when you can go to an advertiser that says a year later, your brand is still associated with the Olympics, that is a really meaningful thing. If it's not just about the love of the Olympics, it's about there's absolutely no surrogate for that. There's no surrogate to replace the halo effect and the impact of the beauty and the health and the dominance of the Olympics. Sea flight, which, tell me if I'm characterizing this wrong, it's an attempt at a new measurement standard, which is, you know, no small thing. Well, sea flight simply moves the ball forward because it's the first combined metric that takes all screen viewing into consideration. So it takes your linear viewing and your digital viewing by verified metric sources, whether it's Nielsen or Comscore or something else we can negotiate determined by the client or the agency and combines all viewing over the duration of a flight, right? So C, just for simple purposes of transition, that that takes into consider the uh, linear viewing that used to be C3, right? Flight, meaning what solely and only makes sense from an advertiser's perspective over the duration of their flight. Are they achieving the viewing metrics that they wanted to receive, right? Or that they wanted to achieve. So it's very logical that says if we're in an uh, on-demand, always-on world, that we should have a metric that does a really, really better job and a currency that reflects consumer behavior. So for example, how illogical is it to even talk about a C3 when C3 was uh, invented over a decade ago to compensate for DVR viewing? And back then, it took about three days to get the viewership back to 100% or back to even from what it was prior. But just the mention of the DVR, I don't know how many people are listening to this, but how many people rely on just their DVR today for their viewing? And Mike, what's your perspective on this? Where do you see the sea flight of it all moving? Will we, even as soon as say 2020 upfronts, could we see sea flight really start to make a mark? 
Yeah, I, I, I'm a big supporter of C-Flight and the initiative behind it. I think it solves for an industry problem uh, that, uh, frankly, no one actually tackled before. Uh, so I, I think C-Flight could be that currency and measurement that potentially displaces other types of model measurements models in the future. Um, you know, what's quite interesting when I look kind of globally, uh, one of the things our clients in other geographies are trying to do is replicate C-Flight. That's one of the biggest questions we get in our media and entertainment practice. How can we do what NBCU did in, in our particular geography? So, you know, I say that as a testament to the value of that model, that construct, and the value that it brings in terms of a measurement perspective. Uh, I do think that the traditional measurement approaches are uh, very inadequate for the media business today. And it's going to become even more inadequate as you move to more of a multi-platform flighting of campaigns. And so that's where I think C-Flight uh, really stands out and shines in the marketplace. I, I couldn't agree with particularly the last part uh, of your sentiments. Not that's where C-Flight stands out, but as the as technology evolves and the maturation of data uh, uh, helps companies like NBC Universal become fully automated, and and that's on the very near term horizon. And I mean automation in terms of commerce between NBC Universal and our clients, whether it's clients direct or agencies. So so the sophistication and maturation of data and technology. As we move to full automation, C-Flight may in fact evolve into something else because once we go to audience level uh, guarantees or other consumer targets or segments to our advertising, it could span the gamut from, from a reach guarantee to some type of business outcome, but solely an age-gender split over a period of time will be archaic in a very short period of time. So to your point and your words, C-Flight, I think, was the impetus for change, right? Mm -hmm. It said, hey, the sun still came up that day that C-Flight went into effect. Oh, my God, stuff still happened. Yeah. And, and, and it goes back to the Accenture study, which was the dominance of the impact of advertising on premium content that marketers know how valuable it is, the most valuable, we're just not measuring it in the right way. Mm. And and what does or did a GRP or a C, uh, C3 rating, what business purpose did it serve? It's outlived its purpose. So there in, in lies, which by the way, uh, C-Flight was done in conjunction and supported uh, uh, by Nielsen, or with Nielsen. And I want to be clear, we think it's just a part of a transition that once the industry got permission to change, now we're going. Now mm -hmm. we're going full steam ahead. Yeah. And it seems like you're saying Nielsen is along for the ride. They're necessary to be part of this. I know in previous years, you know, there's been less charitable assessments of Nielsen's role in all this, but you seem to be evolving on that front. Well, they're really trying to help their partners catch up with consumer behavior. But, you know, none of us believe the marketplace is where it needs to be because the consumer is generations ahead of us right. in how they 
interact with our content on small, medium, and large size screens over any period of time that they want. And we're very far away from that. So, so we know there's a tremendous amount of work to do. And uh, I, we just honestly appreciate the finally the acknowledgement that it's got to change and everybody's trying to roll up their sleeves and get it done. Well, yeah. isn't, I'm sorry, Mike, but isn't there also some urgency here, not just for NBC Universal, but for all involved as we sit here, I don't know, three, four weeks into a fall TV season where the linear viewing levels, it's astonishing the dropping across the board. We're assuming some of this stuff is moving over to digital, you know, whether it's Hulu or whatnot, but is that what's creating some urgency here? Because that traditional C3 number is going to go very far down. Yeah, I, I would say uh, there is a, a viewership decline, as you acknowledged. Um, and, and I think the, you know, our view of C-Flight or whatever measurement approach is, is used in the future actually becomes more expansive. So I think Linda alluded to this a bit. We actually see a C-Flight measurement type model, you know, a year, two years, five years from now, that not only takes in the traditional measurement metrics that you you have today, but it measures engagement in an entirely different way. And right now, the the advertising sales and buy models are not aligned with the, the measurement models. And I think as you, and the engagement models. So I think once you see all those things begin to converge, you're going to actually have uh, measurement that really aligns around a consumer. What are they doing? Where are they at in their journey in, in a day? What device are they on? Mm -hmm. And that's how a C-flight type measurement really allows a marketer to really understand that behavior, target that behavior, and present an ad that has an impact. So I think um, you know, that's where it's going to go. Going back to your question, I, I, I don't think... And, and Linda could keep me honest here. I don't think C-Flight was born out of the need to capture audience share measurement uh, that was shifting. I don't think that was the, 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 the primary impetus. I think it was more about really capturing the behavior of the consumer, wherever they're at. Not let's do this because audience is declining. I don't know. If well, I'm going to challenge the last two or three minutes of the conversation, including the question, oh. which is... Okay. is <laughs> that viewership is declining. Viewership behavior is changing, okay? So if you start in the macro of it all, including all the streaming services that exist today and all the many more of them are gonna exist tomorrow, the reality is viewership is at an all-time high, all-time high overall in the macro. Uh, when you boil it down to what's happening in one day part on four or if you count five networks for a couple of hours of every day, the only thing you really need to do is spread it out over a period of time. Because as I'm sitting here as the, the, the very fortunate person who gets to represent stuff like Sunday night football, check the box, numbers up, all NFL across the board, check the box, yep. no problem there. Uh, because live in the moment we need to know what happened with a piece of content that inspires action, right? Sometimes yelling, crying, screaming, but fantastic competition and emotion. Then you have other things like this is us. That if you look at the linear viewing, 
that on average for last season, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but let's say on average every over each episode, you were looking at an average of 13 million people. It's a lot of people. But when you linear viewing, but when you add in all screen viewing and you go up, if you want to use your metric, you went from a, a three and change rating to almost a six rating. When you added in Hulu and the NBC One app, uh, uh, so you're picking up three, four, five rating points over a period of time for an episode because that's when the consumer chose to see them. So I, that's what C-Flight was about. But, but when I go to C-Flight, you know, there are frustrations with that because you're still just measuring the number of people that you're taking the best guess at who consumed your content over a period of time. But what Mike said was behavior. It is only scratching the surface on behavior and only scratching the surface of who exactly was watching and what they do. So when you talk about behavior, you're like, is a new car buyer? Are they in the market for a car? Are they first timers? First car, first child. So I was going to say first marriage. You hope that everything's always fine. But um, so, so there's a behavioral approach to television that's becoming a tidal wave of view because what the marketers know, what networks know, when you are in an ad-supported ecosystem and you put your content next to a commercial, there's nothing more powerful than that. It's just why we or how we came out of a upfront marketplace season that was record breaking again it was it was really a watershed market in many ways one little way was digitally native companies whether they direct to consumer brands or the social platforms flocked to television displacing what used to be you know uh, uh, age old from day one of television advertisers because there wasn't enough inventory to go around. So the power is there. The power is there. Back to the study. So so I think we have to stop kidding ourselves. And it's not an us versus them. It is how do we remodel the monetization of the most powerful ad-supported ecosystem that exists today with nothing close. So that's what we feel our job is. That's what we feel our job is. It's why there's more content being made now than ever because that inspires the heart center of human beings. And we intend to make sure that it's ad supported for a long time to come. Another area of innovation I wanted to touch on was addressable TV advertising. You guys are out there, you know, going up against, you know, the digital media guys who have great targeting capabilities and all that. But you're no slouches yourselves through initiatives like Project or AdSmart. So give us an update there in terms of how you're continuing to uh, improve? You want to take that first? You want me? Sure. So I'll give you kind of a broad base sure. view on it. I mean, um, what's quite interesting is when you think about the technology capabilities that Comcast, NBCU has had and others have had, uh, they really hadn't been utilized well in the past. And what we're now seeing is this um, drive to really think through how do we better utilize those those assets, the, the the information that we have on the customer, the homes pass, the the equipment, the set top boxes, or other 
uh, consumer premises equipment that we have, the data that we have in our systems. We're seeing a lot more energy around that to really utilize that. Uh, you know, I would say more by the MVPDs than anybody right now. Um, and what we've seen, I'll just give you kind of broad-based facts. I mean, we've seen in some cases when you can get that right, you're, we're seeing high double-digit to triple-digit CPM increases when you can do wow. that right. Yeah, when you could do it right. When yeah, you can the really- reason for that, you're taking the fat out of a TV plan, right? So you're taking the fat out of it, and there's less waste meaning more yield and it's great CPM increases. But when you look at it, which is most important from the marketer and the consumer perspective, the consumer's getting the right ad and the marketer is getting more bang for their buck out of that ad. So really everybody is much happier and you bring up because everyone's business is improving. The consumer's experience is improving. The marketer is cutting fat out of their plan and, mm-hmm. and in, in many cases can save money or actually run more spots to drive more sales. Yeah. And then the companies, the publishers that have more inventory to sell to other people. That's exactly right. So, so it's, it, it really is a, a much improved model or ecosystem in that sense. But I would say that it, with your question that says, you know, and it's true, battle it out with the, with the social platforms that have, you know, good targeting and stuff. The, the game-changing difference with addressable at scale challenges or what will surface what is less valuable uh, content, right? Less, uh, uh, I would say, content that doesn't deliver the return for the marketer like premium content does. That being said, I never sit here and say it's us or them, right? Yeah. Because it's a complete mix. It has to be an enriched mix of a media schedule because the consumer just doesn't watch one screen or one channel, or is on one social platform at a time. I just think we're on the other side of the shiny new toy syndrome. And now we know, and addressable is really exposing that strength of if you get commercialization right in an addressable world on premium content, there's no surrogate. And just one of the questions we get often about addressability is what we call lift versus drag. So how is the market going to be respond? Am I just because I now can target very specific consumers and pay a premium? Do I spend more overall or do I cut my spend down? That is the question we get worldwide yeah. when it comes to addressability. You know, and so, you know, there there is this question. Um, yeah, when, you don't want there to be a trade-off. That's exactly in, right. Targeting versus scale. That's exactly right? right. And it's also something that that dogs the the tech platforms, I'll call them, because you reach a ceiling when you only, as a marketer or a brand, when you only invest in performance based marketing. Because whether you had some brand awareness at the beginning, it starts to deteriorate, or you just hit your head on the ceiling of performance because you're not investing in your brand. So that's when I go back to it's not us or them. It's a combination uh, of media to really deliver the most value to a marketer. And, and again, you have to be, be, have your eye on addressability. You never want it to, to uh, be an exchange for scale. Mm. So what you're talking about, whether it's or, 
which is in partnership with Canoe or OpenAP or what Xander's doing or what Comcast is doing, that's addressable. That's an addressable marketplace on uh, at scale. We just need to figure out how to stitch opportunities together so it's easier for the marketer to invest in it. That's exactly right. Well, it sounds like there is, uh, it's an understatement to say there's a lot going on here on the advertising innovation space, and we'll just have to continue to check in with you both and, and see how it all evolves. So we like that. That's always a good thing. <laughs> Thanks to you both for coming in. Thank, Thank you for, you having, for having us. us. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing.